This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we'll be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell with You Were Always Someone Else. We'll be talking about China Mieville's Last Days of New Paris. Join us on the path of suns and we may discover a secret or two. When we cast You Were Always Someone Else, we discuss sources of inspiration from other games and media for our Invisible Sun games. This time we'll discuss China Mieville's Last Days of New Paris, uh, a recent novella, I believe a 2017 publication. A little background on the author, uh, China Mieville, I'm going to keep counting how many times I get this right because it won't be all of them, <laughs> is, an, uh, is someone who is mentioned in Inspiration for Invisible Sun, uh, I believe at the original uh, launch session. I believe uh, he is name checked in some of the books um, and some of the uh, you know design diaries. Uh, maybe not the most prominent inspiration, but for reasons that will become quite obvious, uh, a very useful source of inspiration for Invisible Sun games. He's a London-based author with a, f- a fairly long track record of writing in fantastic fiction. Uh, with uh, acclaimed novels, uh, including Perdido Street Station uh, and The City in the City. But to be honest, I haven't read those, so I won't uh, be able to talk much about them. Uh, The first uh, work of his that I read, uh, I think, was a short story named Details. And if I have the short story uh, right, uh, I might have the name wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the right name. Uh, It's a a kind of a Lovecraftian short story uh, that I thought was incredibly creepy and effective uh, with, and so it it tipped me off. This was an author that uh, I uh, would be quite interested in uh, reading more. Uh, Only recently, uh, within the past year then, I picked up uh, one of his more recent novels, Kraken. Uh, Dave, I think you said you may have read some of this. Yeah, it was back when I read books. It has been a long time since I've been able to read, read a book. So it, I read part of it, and I don't remember much of it at all. Yeah, it um, it is a challenging book. Uh, my wife, an avid fantasy reader, uh, it just didn't sing to her. Uh, actually, she mm-hmm. said every other chapter was among the best things she'd ever read, but then every <laughs> other chapter uh, she found tedious, and so she just sort of stopped halfway through. So it it might not appeal. That that description reminds me of the last book I read by Neil Stevenson. <laughs> it happens. Um, so I, I you know, it, it, it is a, uh, uh, Mieville is certainly a particular taste and his style is distinctive. Uh, I'm pretty sure I could pick out a Mieville paragraph from most other authors pretty quickly. Uh, uh, Kraken is, uh, I don't want to go into too much detail since it's just sort of background to give you a sense. Uh, it's also a good inspiration for a magical city-based setting. 
It's relatively lower magic than the book we'll be talking about today. It involves sort of the navigation of magical uh, cults and uh, secret societies in contemporary-ish London. Uh, it includes fun references to unconventional types of magic, like origami magic is central to the story, as well as what you might call megalopolomancy, which is the, under <laughs> the understanding of the city itself as a magical entity and the use of magic based upon this either understanding or the manipulation of the city uh, as a source of power. What do you mean manipulation of the city? Um, it is in the book. I recall mostly it used for divining purposes that there are like locations in the city that might, mm -hmm. uh, provide you insight into where things are going on. Um, the, I think the clearest example is not from this book, but if you've read one of the greatest works in the English language, good omens, um, there is a scene when, uh, the demon is trying to, uh, the, the, the main uh, demon in the story doesn't like to work on a one-on-one -on -one basis to generate uh, uh, kind of evil and hatred and anger. He thinks it's much better to operate on a wholesale scale. So he's pulling out the stakes in the construction of the uh, kind of the loop of roads around London, explaining that the aggravation caused by the particular design of that road, road uh, uh, as the Sigil Odegra, will generate more hatred and anger than anything that any of the other demons do poking at a priest or whatever they, they're trying to do to corrupt souls. <laughs> so it's sort of architecture, uh, urban planning, uh, and these sorts of, of major initiatives used to harness energies like you might think of uh, um, uh, ley lines and other sorts of flows of energy. You can mm -hmm. think of even as um, oh, what's the kind of uh, interior design philosophy. Um, that like, like kind of like feng shui feng shui yeah got it yeah <laughs> so you could think of feng shui uh, as often maybe may uh in a very limited uh appropriated form uh as an interior design philosophy of how to live your life and design the spaces in which you live like rooms and buildings mm -hmm. uh, to accommodate an appropriate lifestyle and megalopolomancy is sort of thinking on, a, on a, the next scale up, which is building or using cities to power magic. Okay, yeah, that that would fit right in with uh, the city of Saturn. Yes, so uh, Kraken is uh, you know, has these elements among many more. I've avoided telling you too much about it. Um, it is uh, it is a challenging read. I found that I had to sometimes just sort of let go that it includes a lot of British slang, things I didn't get. <laughs> and I just had to be willing to uh, say... Oi, crikey. Or is that uh, Not so much. <laughs> uh, neither was it the 1970s and 80s slang I was used to from British television. Uh, so it, it was... Uh, I just had to sort of admit sometimes, I don't get this. I'm moving to the next paragraph. Uh, but doing so, I still enjoyed the experience of reading the book. But I can understand how not mm -hmm. everyone would have that same uh, experience. They might not be willing or want to just let things go. And so they might have a very frustrating experience. So uh, consider yourself warned, uh, but maybe enticed. But the book I want to talk about most <laughs> is this newer novella, shorter uh, uh, work called The Last Days of New Paris. A novella, that's probably about the length I could read. 
uh, I, I could read, you could read it in a weekend. It's like 150 pages or something along those lines, except for the appendix, which I'll get to, which is very, very important. Um, awesome. Last Days of New Paris is, a, is uh, you know, Kraken is a, a full novel, very dense, has inspiration in it. But Last Days of New Paris is more or less directly uh, kind of inspiration for Invisible Sun. I don't know whether it was it was read that any of them read it before designing Invisible Sun, but you'll see the connections are so strong that it is a strong source of inspiration. It involves uh, let's see a, a very short plot summary because in a novella, if you give up too much, you know, any more than three bullet points, and you've pretty much given up the entire plot. The novel largely takes place in the World War II occupation of Paris. Early in that occupation, uh, where up to this point, history is much like our own history. Uh, the, uh, you know, the, the German Nazi uh, forces have occupied Paris, but then something happens uh, to be defined in the book. And after that event, uh, surreal art starts to manifest in the world itself. Like, not just things that are surreal begin to appear, but rather specific items that are, were paintings from surreal painters or were described in surreal prose uh, or were included in surreal films begin to physically be present within Paris and sort of, you know, uh, uh, destroy things moving around uh, Paris in a seemingly kind of unorganized, uh, chaotic way, almost like uh, a surreal version of Godzilla, just sort of trampling Paris. Uh, much to the chagrin of both uh, the uh, uh, the resistance uh, and the Nazi occupiers. Because of this, you get to see the interaction of two key elements of the Invisible Sun setting. That is the interaction with surreal elements uh, and a war-torn setting. Now, in this book, the war-torn setting is probably more present and more uh, uh, contemporary than in the Invisible Sun campaign as as written. Uh, in Invisible Sun, we're coming in after a war. So we have a war-torn setting, but it's not, the war isn't currently going on. In this book, the war is currently going on. The resistance and the occupying forces are fighting each other while giant surreal entities are trampling about. Uh, so it's not exactly the same. But this nexus of war-torn surrealism, I think, is a uh, wonderful inspiration for uh, Invisible Sun games. So it's so on the nose that it uh, I, I recommend people pick it up. Um, and I'll, I'll go over a couple of more specific examples uh, from the novel. But I don't want to go uh, much more into the plot. It. <laughs> Excellent. I, I recommend it. It's, it's also not super expensive. Uh, like my hardcover, I think, was under $20. Cool. But I don't know if yeah, I just grabbed the Kindle edition, so I'll just read that. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to go too much into the plot because that would give away too much. I will say that it involves um, people with recognizable names from real world history, but at there is a critical juncture in early occupied uh, Paris where this event takes things off in a different direction. But you might want to do, depending upon your familiarity with Fordiana and sort of other kind of occult history of the 20th century and things like that, some of the references may or may not uh, catch your eye. But there are some interesting combinations of, we'll just say, 
uh, French and American occult uh, figures in the 20th century, and it's their convergence that propels the plot forward. We should really do a show about a, like famous people in occult history. Or we could just say, go listen to Ken and Robin talk about stuff. Ooh, that's probably better. Because <laughs> they do that about every other episode. They've got something along those lines. Uh, right now, they seem to, they are in a series supporting the uh, recently Kickstarter released, soon to be full release, I believe, Yellow King role-playing game. So they're looking at Belle Epoque, late, uh, t- late 19th century uh, Parisian occultists. And they're going to continue talking about again, more occultists. They, they have segments on this all the time. So uh, if we find something that they haven't talked about, <laughs> then or uh, mm-hmm. that is so important that it would be worthwhile specifically to Invisible Sun, I'd be open to that. More than that, I'd be interested in that. Yes. Uh, but I don't want to get too close to what they do, because what they do, they do so well. Uh, yeah, yeah. Go listen to Ken and Robin talk about the occult. <laughs> so let me talk about some specific inspiration you can draw into your game uh, independent of even if you don't have, read the novel uh, or it might inspire you to do that reading and again this inspiration comes from the intersection of surrealism and urban warfare the first is a key concept in surreal art uh, but it has been used in a variety of contexts since then are you familiar with the term exquisite corpse? I am not. I can imagine what it is, but why don't you describe it? Pro- it, it, it? It is not likely what you would first guess it would be. My first guess is that it is pristine and beautiful dead bodies. That is a fair reading of those words, but it is not what the yeah. words mean in context. All right. So what, <laughs> that what is what the words ex- mean? What is exquisite context? corpse? It's most often encountered today in um, uh, creative writing as a creative writing exercise where people will take turns writing uh, sections of a story. And then Mm -hmm. the resulting story is known as an exquisite corpse. That is because it's not one person writing from start to finish. It's one person writing one page and then handing it off to the next person to pick up and without knowing the intentions of the first author and writing a second page. And then a third person picks up and without knowing the intentions of the first two tries to write the next part of the story. And so it it harnesses, it is thought the independence of each of these authors to discover something that no one of the authors could have written on their own. It is also an exercise among the surreal visual artists where as far as I can tell, at least as represented in the, this novella, uh, they would literally take a, a figure like a, a would, what would be a body in a, a painting or a sketch. I think mm-hmm. it's usually a sketch. And one person would design an arm. One person would design a leg. <laughs> and then they would bring it. And of course, they wouldn't say this should be a human arm. They're like something arm like and something leg like and something head like. And then only after everyone has drawn their piece, would they bring together the body. Uh, composed of disparate pieces that are vaguely reminiscent of a human body. It sounds a lot like the uh, game that I play with my children every once in a while, where you take a sheet of paper, you fold it in three, and one person draws the legs, and then one person draws the body, and one person draws the head. 
Absolutely. That is very much in the spirit of this exercise, except imagine doing that with, um, you know, 19, well, this, this would have been 19 early forties in the setting of this novella, early forties, surreal artists, probably Mm -hmm. out of their brains on drugs. Um, so, uh, about as uh, good at art as my children, (laughs) something like that. (laughs) But, but these artists will insist that it's art. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I'm just kidding. Um. So there is one exquisite corpse in particular called this by name in the novella. There are several uh, uh, manifestations described in the book more briefly that would all kind of fall under this category of an exquisite corpse. But what's useful for our uh, Invisible Sun games is the notion that part of the surreal tradition is just this hodgepodge of mismatched metaphorical pieces of a body. And that you might have a, uh, and you see this represented in the art from the books, you know, a, 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 one leg is a tree while another is a machine and the head is a steamboat um, or something, something, these combinations of different forces, uh, different kind of representations uh, help to accentuate the surreal. It was thought, the surrealists didn't do this just to be funny. Uh, Mm-hmm. They were hoping that these combinations might reveal interesting patterns among the pieces and that, again, they would kind of access a shared subconscious uh, by using these sorts of, of gestalt creations as opposed to the deliberate creation consciously drawn by a single person. For our games, you might not aspire to quite that, but you might still aspire to that sense, the emotions that are evoked by these combinations by using the exquisite court's approach in your own design to say, okay, I want to design a tiger, but let's have it an exquisite corpse tiger. And so this tiger is going to have the head of, um, rather than, I, I, w- I would try to stay away from another animal since it's already an animal, but like maybe the head of a construction vehicle, um, one of the legs is um, actually a you know a, a a waterfall, and you can just kind of you can go off on as as much or as little as you want, combining different uh, metaphors into the same entity to again draw into question the coherence of that body, uh, to draw into question the separateness of these uh, these entities these concepts. But that way, you could use the exquisite corpse technique in your own character design or uh, like antagonist design setting design and the like this this makes me think it would be it'd be pretty easy to put together some sort of mad libs sort of thing that you could pull it at the table and say hey all right player one give me uh give me a noun of something that's sharp now i really want to know what would happen in, in this impossible historical scenario if salvador dali in his scuba suit standing in front of a room of New York intellectuals, someone raised their hand and said, so you're basically saying this is a Mad Lib? <laughs> I don't know whether there would be a single tear coming out of his eye, um, or he would enthusiastically say, yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> he, but think about it. Like, you could do this at the oh, table, right. and you could get your input from your players, and as long as you give them a little bit of direction, then you don't have to put, like, so much pressure on them to say, like, all right, give me give me some crazy idea and then we're going to mash it all together and come up with our surreal tiger monster. 
Uh, yeah, you could do that. I, I, and I think it, it could be a fun exercise and it'll depend upon yeah. the tone of your your game. If you are highly participative and your players are used to, to doing this and they really want the fun of the surreal, and it, it shouldn't. I, I do want to emphasize that for, you know that while there were some serious motivations among the surreal authors, to be sure, there was also a motivation for fun, and that through this fun, they might discover more about themselves in the world. So there's nothing. Mm. There's nothing wrong with having fun with it. Um, but you you know it, it, some might want to you know some groups may want to take it more seriously. It all depends upon your group. Yeah, and I'm not. I'm not even suggesting this as a joke. I'm saying like. This, I think you could actually put together something pretty interesting here and also tie it into the theme of surrealism and this mm -hmm. exquisite corpse where you're taking all these disparate ideas and putting them together, but here you're getting all these ideas from your players. Or, or without telling them what you're doing, you could right. even say, you, use one of those memes, uh, like, send me the fifth picture on your phone. I guess you have to be careful with who it is in your group. Uh, yeah. But something like send me the fifth picture of your phone or send me the some random image from Google image search or something like that. And then you can combine the images they send you into what will be their uh, either antagonist or ally for the, the next session. Yeah. And you might only explain it to them afterwards that what you did was combine all these images together or something along those lines. Uh, or don't even explain it. <laughs> explanations are for the week ah, but but as a gm you want to explain it so that your parent your players know how uh cool you are yes yes of course Look at these great ideas i have players <laughs> uh the, the the second source of inspiration i would say is that uh in addition to this exquisite corpse approach uh is the in the setting of last days of new paris the, these manifestations, as they're called, or these surreal constructs, end up being almost weapons of destruction. You know that they are, in some cases, just independently, um, you know, traipsing across Paris, uh, cutting through a swath of destruction, and everyone tries to stay mm -hmm. away from them. Uh, there are hints early on that there may even be people who are trying to control them. And if you could imagine what, you know, if, if there is a 40 foot tall exquisite corpse stomping around, if there's someone who could direct their, their, uh, their attention, uh, then you might have a very dangerous weapon, weapon of war, basically a siege weapon, but a surreal siege weapon. And that also could be useful if you're looking, you're trying to figure out what might be abandoned out in the blasted areas of Indigo and, and war-torn Saturine. Mm -hmm. uh, think about what surreal, uh, how instead of looking thinking about what a surreal what an intentionally designed siege weapon would look like in a surreal version this is just imagine something like an exquisite corpse but it, but reappropriated as a siege engine <laughs> so it was never designed to be a siege engine but it's it's bigness and its power could just be used in that capacity uh and you yeah. there's a lot of examples of that within the, the novella that i think could be used uh, useful for people to draw from one warning, uh, and it's a relatively minor one, is that because this novella takes place during an active shooting war between the resistance and the occupying forces in surreal Paris, you might find that the factions um, in the, uh, the novella are a little too wartime for an Invisible Sun campaign, at least the campaign as it's described in the, uh, the base game. 
because in this case, the war is supposed to be over. So those, those factions may not be directly translatable to contemporary Saturnine politics, uh, though they may be useful to if there's any lingering factions from wartime. Uh, you could draw the factions from this uh, novella in, into that. Um, but I, I think it's important to emphasize that since there, there are differences in how this novel will play out uh, and some of the uses of the elements of the novel that are contingent upon its being an active shooting war. Uh, and so it'd be better for a wartime story than the Invisible Sun setting, which is supposed to be immediately past uh, post-war. Yeah, good and to keep I, I wanna... in mind. But I think those surreal constructs out in the, the uh, whatever they're called. Oh, man, I forget it every time we record. The surreal <laughs> constructs out in the destruction zones, like that's that that works very easily. It's very hard to remember anything related to the war for some reason. <laughs> yeah, so not my fault. No. The uh, the best part of this novella, and I did like it quite a bit, so... That, um, and this might tell you something, is something I only discovered at the very end. There is an appendix, which uh, is very they usually easy to miss. are at the end, dude. They and they are usually at the end. Um, <laughs> I wish I had known this was there from the beginning. The appendix has a page by page breakdown of every reference to a surreal work hmm. in the novella. And most of the manifestations and these surreal entities described in the novella mm -hmm. were directly taken from surreal art uh, in not necessarily obeying the chronology. Some of it's taken from after the 1940s, for instance. And so it might appear in 1940s Paris when it really wasn't drawn until 1960 or something along those lines. Well, now I want a refund. Right. Yeah. I, or at least a partial refund, a rebate of some kind. Yeah. Um, so ignoring the chronology a bit, it is incredibly interesting to, to find that, oh, well, his references to these giant plants that are pulling uh, planes out of the sky um, and stopping the, you know, the, Ger the, the German uh, air advance is actually a surreal painting. <laughs> hmm. And then it has references to wh who, who painted it and in what context uh, so that you could look up the original uh, painting itself and see where, how uh, Mieville translates a, a visual art to his own prose. Um, so I, I got to you know enjoy this only retrospectively saying, oh, that's where that thing came from. And oh, that exquisite corpse is this specific exquisite corpse drawn by these people at this time. And if I Google this name, I'll find it. Uh, but I think if I'd known from the beginning, I would have kind of read it in parallel. I would have read a few pages of the novella and then flipped back to the appendix and found out like, oh, here's where those things are from. And then maybe sat, if I had been able to sat down with my computer even at the same time and and Googled what these pieces of art actually look like. Mm -hmm. So I'd have visual reference to complement his um, his uh, uh, prose references. Oh, that's cool. I'll keep that in mind when I read it. Yep, I do recommend it. I think this can be great inspiration for Invisible Sun games. Uh, and uh, uh, it's it has certainly been useful to me in thinking about the game. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. 
you can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha help people find us.